0: This weekend, you might not be aware, but we have had 17 churches on our campus, over 300 youth for our citywide Disciple Now, and I got to tell you, it was impressive to see all of these young people all over our facility all weekend. So I want to thank you as a church for being willing to welcome in groups from all over the city to be a part of something special like that. It was quite a sight to see yesterday. We also had our pancake breakfast this morning. Did everybody get pancakes? All right, so if you have a little bit of a sugar high, I'm going to do my best to keep you engaged this morning, okay? We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, continuing our series of when love comes to town, looking at life transformation throughout the entire Bible. Now, the passage this morning is probably the passage when it comes to life transformation, because we see a story of a man who was a hater of Christians, a murderer. Jesus stops him dead in his tracks, and his life is radically changed. So imagine for a moment the worst person you know. Whether that be the person you're currently sitting next to, which I hope not. Whether that be a coworker, a neighbor, maybe a family member. And then imagine you go through a period of time without seeing them, maybe 10, 15 years, and you run into them down the road. And everything about this person is completely changed. Their demeanor, their attitude, the way they communicate with you, it's like it's a completely different person. And that's exactly what we have here in the story of Saul. Somebody that people thought there's no way this man would ever become a follower of Jesus. And yet, the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of his heart. So we're going to read the entire narrative. It's 31 verses. Here we go, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound And he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied when we read a narrative like this our jaw drops because we don't hear stories of transformation like this very often Now, the great thing about narratives in the New Testament is there is a ton of application. So I want to share with you four observations that I make from this text this morning. Number one, I want you to see that Saul was blinded by his own religion. You see, a lot of times when we think about the story of Saul, our mind immediately goes to the end of Acts chapter 7. Because at the end of Acts 7... Saul is standing there as Stephen is being stoned to death. And Luke tells us that Saul stood there giving approval to everything that happened. And we think to ourselves, what a horrible, horrible man Saul was. But the reality is that what Saul was doing was perfectly okay in his mind. He was doing what he thought was best for his religion. You see, the scary part of the story of Saul is not so much that he murdered Christians, but that he was blinded by his own religious activity. Religious activity in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. We would encourage it. Worship attendance, Bible reading, fasting, prayer, giving your money to the church. These are all things that we would highly encourage you to do. But what is the motive behind those actions? Do they create a spirit of humility or do they create a spirit of arrogance? Do they make you aware of your own inadequacy before a holy God or do they make you judgmental? You see, for Saul, his religious activity made him arrogant and judgmental and hateful. He was so entrenched in his religion that he did not even realize that murdering Christians was wrong. That's a scary place to be. Religious activity is everywhere around us. Everybody thinks that if we do good, if we perform enough, then God will be satisfied. But you see, religion teaches... That I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But that is not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And Saul could not grasp that point. If we were to be honest with ourselves, even though many times we live our life as if religious activity makes us right with God, we still have this question in the back of our minds. Is it enough? And the answer is no. No amount of religious activity is enough. The gospel teaches that Jesus did all of that work on your behalf to perform every good work that you were incapable of performing yourself. That's what the gospel teaches. So we place our faith and our trust not in our own religious works, but in the work that Christ did for us on the cross. That is the ultimate source of freedom. I'll never forget, I was 18 years old. I had just began college at a school that I won't name for fear of persecution. But I was really growing in my walk with the Lord, studying Scripture, praying, faithful in worship. And I thought I was on the inside track to being exactly where God wanted me to be. But I was completely blind to the fact that in the process of doing all of these great things, that there was a spirit of pride and judgment that was growing up inside of me. Fortunately for me, I had somebody in my life who cared about me very much tell me that the very activities that I thought was making me closer to God was actually making me farther from Him. Because the spirit was off. It wasn't out of a sense of humility. It wasn't out of a sense of service. It was out of a sense of duty. It was out of a sense of trying to prove to other people that I was better than them. You cannot have freedom in Christ if that is your mentality. If you are living your life functionally believing that the works you put in the church are what save you, you will never be free. And we see this in Saul's life. He thought, the more Christians I kill, the more proud God is going to be of me. But Satan was using that very mentality to lead him away from Jesus. Until Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks. It's very easy for us to be blinded by our own religion. But the good news is, we see somebody in this story who steps up and comes alongside of Saul. And his name is Ananias. And what Ananias shows us is the importance of obedience. Imagine if Saul was left to process this transformation on his own. He has just seen a vision of Jesus walking along the road. He could have misinterpreted it. He could have dismissed it. But God was working ahead of him. Telling him that a man named Ananias is going to come alongside of you and he's going to pray with you and he's going to explain to you everything that happened because Ananias was farther in the journey than Saul was. The true hero of the story is Ananias because he knew the threat that Saul could be, he knew the danger that was involved in going to somebody like Saul. Luke tells us that Ananias was well aware of all of the horrible things that Saul had been doing. And yet for Ananias, obedience trumped the fear of what might happen. I love a quote that I read just a few weeks ago. Actually, I heard it in an interview with Rosaria Butterfield, who I've mentioned a lot this year. But I want to read this quote to you, what she says. She's talking about the church in America. She says the early church feared false teaching more than it feared persecution. And because of that, the early church was willing to do anything to see their neighbors converted. But what she goes on to say is that the Western church primarily is more concerned about persecution than we are about false teaching. And what we're finding is that the church in the Western world, for the most part, is not growing. Because we've accommodated the truth of Scripture. We would rather people believe something that gets them into the room instead of believing the truth of the gospel. And so what we're actually doing is creating churches that are full of warm bodies, but not all of them are disciples of Jesus Christ. And there is a big difference. Ananias did not care about persecution. He wanted to come alongside Saul and make sure that Saul understood the truth of the gospel so that he could then become the greatest missionary that the Christian church has ever seen. You know the places around the world where the church of Jesus Christ is growing the most? It's in places where persecution is at its highest. Africa, Southeast Asia where believers in Jesus Christ are not worried at all about losing their life because the gospel is more important than anything else and the church is growing like wildfire in these areas. So it's a reminder to all of us to heed Ananias' example of being obedient above all else. We also see in this passage one of the most intriguing aspects of the story when the crowd notices what Saul has done. They cannot believe it. They are stunned. This murderer, this hater of Christians whose one goal in life was to stamp out anybody that was associated with Jesus Christ, Luke tells us that he's now in the synagogue teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a complete 180. It's unlike anything the people have ever seen. And yet I'm convinced that the people were not so much doubting Saul as they were actually doubting God's ability to save Saul. And if I were to confess to you honestly this morning there are certain people in my life that I have this thought sometimes. I wonder if God can actually save them. And we make excuses to that end. I know this person is never going to be able to give up this habit, so it's really no point in sharing Jesus with them. I know this atheist is so antagonistic to the truth of Scripture that I'm not even going to waste my time Or I know this person knows so little about the truth of Scripture that it's really just, it's too much for me to handle. And we doubt the power of God to save souls. Why do we struggle with this? I hope I'm not the only one who has those thoughts. Why is our faith sometimes so weak? Why do we doubt God's ability to transform the lives of individuals? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why that is. Number one, we live in a naturalistic world where everything has to have a scientific explanation. And the reality is when people are transformed in Christ, it is a supernatural experience. And there's sometimes not a lot of tangible evidence to explain to somebody how this person was radically saved. another reason is we live in a post-truth, post-modern world where absolute truth is being dismissed. And so we're taking the commands that Jesus gives us in Scripture and we have made them optional. Let me give you an example of this. The Barna Group, which is a group that studies religion and they predict trends and they give statistics. They recently came out with a study just three weeks ago that said that 47% of American Christian millennials, so me, and people much, much, much older than me, 47% of American Christian millennials came out and said that they believe it is wrong to share the gospel with somebody in hopes that they will be converted to Christianity. 47%. In this same study... These same American Christian millennials, like myself, 94% said that they still believe that believing in Jesus and trusting in Him is the most important decision a person could make. So something is off. I understand the trepidation, the anxiety, the fear that we get when we know that we're supposed to share our faith with people. Evangelism is not my primary spiritual gift. But yet Jesus isn't asking me if I feel like doing that. He's commanding me to do it. So it's not optional. And it's hard. And I sympathize and empathize with those of you who struggle doing it. But this is not the way forward for the church in America. To believe that it is wrong to sit down and have a conversation with somebody about the gospel. Sam Chan recently wrote a book at the end of last year. It's an excellent book. I'd recommend that you read it. It's called Evangelism in the Skeptical World. And one of the things he talks about in this book is the idea of plausibility structures Now, that's a really fancy word. Let me break it down. Plausibility structure, all that means is the believability of a claim. So, for instance, let's say that I told you last night a UFO dropped down into my backyard and the aliens came inside. We had dinner together. Then they took me and my family up into their spaceship and gave us a tour of New Orleans. You would immediately say that that is implausible. No doubt that that could not happen. Because it's outside of your plausibility structure. Now, but if I were to tell you about a virgin who gave birth to a son, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was raised three days later, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, 90% of you in this room would have absolutely no problem believing that, even though in many ways those claims are equally as far-fetched as the story about a UFO. So what Chan points out is that the only way to challenge somebody's plausibility structures is to bring them into community. You see, for a long, long time, and I've been guilty of this myself, we have had our group of Christian friends and our group of non-Christian friends. And we have tried our best to keep them separate. But what Chan points out is the only way people that don't believe the claims in this book will come to believe them is if we're willing to take our circles and merge them together. So those people see, you know what? All of these people in this room believe that Jesus died on the cross. Perhaps it's not as far-fetched as I once thought it was. Maybe some of you in here are struggling with your for the city emphasis, where we have challenged every single person to reach out to one family member, one neighbor, one coworker, and one person in your recreational circle and to invest in them. Maybe you're struggling doing that alone. Well, here's what I would challenge you to do. Why don't you grab another friend another couple, and do it with them. Because statistics show that these plausibility structures of non-Christians are only going to change if they're in a group with other Christians. So let's say you have a potluck dinner. Instead of inviting four of your Christian friends, why don't each of those four couples invite one non-Christian couple that they know? Then the worlds can begin to merge together and the beliefs that they doubt can become more believable because they see more people believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have got to merge our universes as followers of Christ. And then we see a trusted friend. Barnabas is willing to stand up and say, you know what, I know Saul has a very, very checkered past. I know all you guys are freaked out by him, but I'm going to stand by him and I'm going to advocate that what happened to him on the Damascus Road was legit. The Spirit of God transformed his life, and Barnabas is such a key part of of the story of Saul's transformation because he's willing to stand up and tell all of the disciples and all of the apostles and all of those in the church that denied and doubted that what had happened to Saul actually happened, Barnabas says it happened. Why can Barnabas say that? Because he had the faith that God could still transform souls. He stood in the gap for Saul when no one else was willing to do it. And as a result, God uses Saul and Barnabas to go out on that first missionary journey and spread the gospel all over the world. He was a trusted friend who stood up for a man that he hardly knew because he trusted and had faith that God had the power to transform a life. So who are you in this story? There's four people in this story that we can identify with. Saul, the religious master. Have you been relying on your own religious achievement to make you right with God? It will not make you right with God. Maybe you're Ananias. Maybe you know there's somebody in your life or somebody soon that God is going to bring in your life that you need to come alongside of and encourage and pray with and help them understand the truth of the gospel. It's not easy reading this book alone, especially as a new follower of Christ. Maybe you're the skeptical disciples and crowd who doubted the transformation of Saul. We need to pray and ask God to give us big faith that He can still perform miracles and still transform people's lives that we cannot even comprehend He could do. And then maybe one of you in this room need to stand in the gap for a brother or sister in Christ who many people are skeptical of whether or not the decision they made was sincere. That is not for us to decide. So let's come alongside of him. Let's stand in the gap. Let's be an advocate for those who need support and encouragement. Many times when we think about the gospel, when we say the word gospel, we think of the one-time event where God changed our life. But the gospel is not a one-time event. It is a daily rediscovery. Every day I need to be reminded That I am not accepted because I obey. I obey because Jesus changed my life. So if you need to write that phrase down, put it in your car, put it on your phone to where you see it, and you can immediately know Jesus loves me. Not because of anything I have done, but because of everything he did. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the story of Saul. We thank you for transforming his heart and his mind. We thank you for using him to spark the greatest Christian missionary movement this world has ever seen. God, if we have people in our life that we know need the gospel, may you give us the faith to believe that you can change their hearts. God, forgive us for doubting you Forgive us for thinking that it's our eloquence or our words or our presentation that save anybody. Help us to know it's your spirit. You are in the business of saving people. So God, I pray that you would give us a spirit of humility, a spirit of service, a spirit of love to go and share the gospel with those that we know. And we will give you all the praise, glory, and honor. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.